Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo What's Next is on summer break and we'll return with new content shortly. As we take this break, please continue to tune in to WBFO Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. for producer picks of some of our favorite episodes of Buffalo What's Next. How can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On today's episode of Buffalo What's Next, Summertime Producer Picks, we highlight three segments from previous shows. Jay Moran speaks with journalist and former WKBW reporter Madison Carter from June 14th of last year. We continue with Jay Moran speaking with Harper Bishop, formerly a part of Push Buffalo, to talk about the power of a united community voice in the fight for social and racial justice from June 16th of last year. And we end the show with excerpts from Making Spaces panel discussion at Buffalo Art Studio from December 15th of last year, where they discuss art, urban planning, and economic justice. First, an update from Jay Moran. You're listening to an earlier conversation on Buffalo What's Next with journalist Madison Carter. After spending considerable time covering Buffalo as a reporter for WKBW-TV Channel 7, she was working in Atlanta at the time of this interview. She is now an anchor and investigative reporter for WSOC-TV in Charlotte, North Carolina. And welcome back to uh, Buffalo What's Next. Our next guest is very familiar to uh, Buffalo TV audiences, uh, Madison Carter, formerly of Channel 7 here in Buffalo. Spent about three years here, now with 11 Alive in Atlanta. A couple of other interesting elements here with Madison. Uh, She also came back and reported in Buffalo following the May 14th shootings uh, at the Jefferson Avenue Tops for WGRZ-TV. Madison, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be with you. I've got a lot to, to talk about here, but uh, you didn't lose your connections. It wasn't that long a time ago that you were in Buffalo. So if you could just take us back to your first impressions when you heard about the shootings on Jefferson Avenue. Yeah, I mean, Buffalo, I always tell people I was, I'm DMV born. I was born outside of D.C., but I say I'm Buffalo bred because my time there just really shaped me as a human being. I still have so many friends, people I consider family in Buffalo, and that's really how I started hearing about it. Um, some former journalists who were in Buffalo started reaching out to me that Saturday afternoon. Have you heard about what happened? And as soon as I heard, I, I got home and I turned on the TV, and I turned on Channel 7 where I used to work, and I'm watching the wall-to-wall coverage. Ashley Rowe was on. The reporters were in the field. Um, I'm scrolling through my phone on Twitter trying to get as many details as possible. Um, stories that I had been working on during my time in Buffalo that I wasn't able to complete were just popping into my head. And then I started getting messages from friends, um, from close friends. And I remember one message. Uh, he said that his aunt was killed. Hmm. And that was um, pearly young. And that's when it really hit me. I was like, I know this community so deeply, like, that I, I'm almost being, I mean, being impacted by what happened. I know someone who knows someone who was killed. And that's when it really started to set in for me what was going on. And then you get the call to come here to actually cover it because uh, the station that you work with in Atlanta is uh, the owner is the same that owns uh, WGRZ-TV here in, in Buffalo. So you, you you come to Buffalo, 
now give me your first impressions about your reporting and what you saw when you came here. And, and again, maybe take us through those that understanding of, of the neighborhood that was impacted here that really a lot of Western New Yorkers don't have an understanding of. I think my first impressions and, and my first emotions were on the plane, and it was, it was honestly disappointment um, because I remember covering the riots after George Floyd's death a few years ago, and at that time I was president of the Buffalo Association of Black Journalists. And I remember being out there, and I sent out this tweet that got a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I was the only black journalist that was covering those riots. And after that, there was so much momentum. I met with all of the newsroom leaders, and they said, you're right, this was not acceptable. We need to make sure our newsrooms are in a place to be able to respond if there's another racially charged incident or racially motivated incident. And, you know, we're going to make sure we're in a position if this happens again. So when I say disappointment, it was disappointment because I was once again on a plane being flown into a community because the newsrooms were not in a position to respond to that community once again. And so um, I kind of felt a little let down that um, that mission wasn't accomplished of making sure our newsrooms had diversified enough. And let me, let me, let me pause here and say that the coverage was outstanding. It was great. It was fantastic. The journalists are, they're strong journalists, but you know, you come into that community, like, had, had they been there before? When was the last time a lot of those journalists had been over there, with or without a camera? Um, did they know anybody? I went and I saw friends, family, neighbor, my, my next-door neighbor was standing next to me on the sidewalk when I was over there. Um, and so um, that, that, that was sort of my first emotion. I was a little sad that we still didn't have diverse newsrooms to where um, they had enough sources. I remember I was still pulling out sources from, I didn't even have my work phone anymore. Um, so I kind of wish that we had, we had done a better job in Buffalo of responding. Yeah. And and in that regard, I'll kind of jump into a a different topic that I was going to come to later in this conversation, but you really touched Mm -hmm. upon it there. I know you, you, the uh, NAB, NABJ uh, did uh, a survey of, of local newsrooms. I think it was maybe a year ago when you were still here Mm -hmm. and, you know, talked about the, the lack of people of color in the newsrooms here. Mm -hmm. Let's just ask a question from, from your perspective how has it impacted Buffalo, from what you understand, uh, from the, your time here in Buffalo? How has it impacted Buffalo, in a negative mm-hmm. sense, for not having that representation on TV, in radio, here in Buffalo? It's made it so that people only hear about people in, in the black community when there's something wrong. Um I remember getting hired and they told me, hey, make sure you don't live on the east side. Mm. And I said, why? And I remember eventually after a couple of years of being there, I used to just turn to people and say, they're, they're just black people. Like, it's just black people. It's okay. They're just black people. Um, there's nothing wrong. And I think that, um, you know, and, and it's not even that there's something wrong or there's something nefarious. People go to where, where they're comfortable. Sure. I would be there because I was comfortable. Um, you know, everybody flocks to their own communities. And so I think it's impacted it negatively because um, it's othered any news that has to do with black people because people are uncomfortable and they're, you know, worried they're not going to have the proper perspective. So they just stay away from it entirely. And that's not um, helpful for others because no one really understood the needs of that community until there was something wrong and no one cares. So um, I really think that's why it's important to have different kinds of people in newsrooms so that they can be plugged into different communities 
um, so that you can respond appropriately and with proper perspective if something's wrong or, you know, when there are positive things happening as well. Yeah, and I wanted to get into that because that is one of the things that, one of the types of questions we've had here uh, the last couple of weeks. Talk about the strengths of those neighborhoods. What Mm -hmm. makes them special? Yeah, I love that question. Um, (laughs) It's the community. And even being away from Buffalo, people ask me, do you love Atlanta? And I was like, "Mm," (laughs) because I miss the community. I missed how much people care. Um, when you're over there east of Main Street, um, it's this tight-knit community where everyone knows everyone. They go based on your last name. I remember I got to Buffalo. They said, what's your last name? Who are your people? Who's your family? Where does your mom work? Um, <laughs> it's the food, the culture. Like this, It's still a community where recipes are passed down. Like There's some recipes I learned just from being in Buffalo that they were not on Pinterest or in cookbooks. It's because they're being passed down generally, gen- generationally through families. Um, the shopping, meeting up, talking, like people still really, really know each other. Um, and they really care about each other. They take care of each other. Um, churches, everyone knows. If I, if I need anything done in Buffalo, I'm starting at a church. Mm-hmm. I'm, start- I'm, I'm starting with the pastor because they can plug me into um, anyone. They are the hubs essentially, um, on the east side of Buffalo. So it's just, it's this amazing place with amazing people who really know each other and care about each other. There's this joke, like, there's certain areas where you don't have cell phone coverage, (laughs) and that's probably why people (laughs) still know each other. You can't even use your cell phone, so you actually have to talk to people in certain parts of the east side of Buffalo. Um, It's just one of the most amazing places, honestly. Do you have a favorite place? Is there a favorite place that that you miss... uh... In, the, in that neighborhood? Is there a favorite place I miss? Honestly, I've had some of the best um, catfish in my life at Fat Cats south of Kensington. Mm. So I know you didn't ask this question, but I've gotten it. Um, and people are saying, you know, how, how can you be integrated in this community, you know, without just being like, hello, I'm a white person. And I want to explore a black neighborhood. Like, explore things like that. Go to mm. some restaurants, you know. Stop by that library. Um, it's, I don't know, go, oh, even the Broadway market, that's on the east side of Buffalo, but people almost think of it as an other, and I'm like, no, that's, that's part of the east side of Buffalo, like, that almost explains Buffalo, Broadway market, right, all of the culture and just coming together, um, but just, yeah, start to explore some of the, the parks, the parks are amazing, um, there's so many ways to just get to know your neighbors without trying to make a spectacle of like, hey, what's going on over here? We'll get right back to our conversation on Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo Toronto Public Media's unique and valued programming on WNED-PBS, WNED Classical, and WBFO make us a perfect partner for any company interested in making a real difference in our community. Your support has the power to associate your business with one of the most trusted brands in North America. Call me, Sylvia Bennett, to find out how you can make a difference. 716-845-7005. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. 
This is WBFO, your NPR station. We are talking with uh, Madison Carter today on Buffalo What's Next. Madison uh, spent about three years at Channel 7 here in Buffalo, was back also uh, covering uh, the May 14th shootings on Jefferson Avenue for WGRZ-TV. She now works for 11 Alive in Atlanta. Uh, Kyle Mackey, my former colleague here, uh, introduced our audience uh, introduced you to our audience, as a matter of fact, a couple of years ago in very memorable fashion. You already brought it up in our conversation. Uh, the uh, the protest at uh, Niagara Square, this is after the uh, murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And like you said, you were the only black journalist on the scene at that time. But also, can you maybe tell us about your reporting and how you came to understand how the police interacted with the black community here in Buffalo and how it has impacted that community? Mm. It's one of those water is wet kind of stories now where you look at the numbers of who, how many people are being pulled over and what kind of tickets are being given out, misdemeanor, who's in the jail. Um, people feel that the black community is over-policed. Um, the whole stop and frisk you know, scenario where people were literally just being pulled over or stopped because they were black. And so this is just a generational thing. This has been happening for a long time in Buffalo, um, where there's a distrust of police. And so I think that if going back to the protests, things were fine until police started making their presence known. And that's when people started wanting to agitate and really start to the tensions rose once police were there because people just don't trust them. I remember the um, incident with the young lady. This was very, very well known in Buffalo where the officer called her the C word. Mm. Um, That was on the West side of Buffalo. And so there's just all these incidents that come up where people are just, they don't, they don't trust police, frankly. Um, And so I always talk about the Buffalo peacemakers, how they're the intermediary between the police. Like they, they work with the police department, but they don't have the badge. They don't have the gun. And so often I think it's one of the smartest things the Buffalo Police Department has done is to really bring in the peacemakers as that assistance to help them to send, hey, somebody that you've seen in your neighborhood before, you've, you know this person, Pastor James Giles is um, the head of peacemakers, um, and he's familiar to people in the community, so they can kind of send him ahead to help with that interaction. Um And I don't really have the answers as to how you can rebuild that trust, but I think it starts with equity and policing and making sure the police are a part of the community, right, as opposed to just going into community and saying, like, here, we're here to keep you safer when that's not what they're doing. They're just here to try to make their presence known. You're from Washington, D.C. You now live in Atlanta, uh, two uh, very heavily uh, black communities uh, for sure here in the United States. Can you take us through what you know about Atlanta? You haven't been there that long just yet, but compare what life is like there for a person of color compared to the way it is in Buffalo. Atlanta is one of the most truly integrated cities I've ever lived in. It's not forced integration. It's just, you can go anywhere and see all kinds of different people. And I always say it's so different from Buffalo because in black communities all over America, it's it's a black community. You know, we go down together, we ride together. There's essentially a lot of people trying to protect. Even if you're doing something wrong, there's a sense of needing to protect somebody in the black community if you're another black member. That 
is not true in Atlanta. It doesn't matter what color you are. People are going to operate how they're going to operate. And that's the most unique thing to me. Um, And I see it play out in Buffalo, I think particularly with the mayor. Um, You have a black mayor and you have a black community that's very frustrated with him, but they still keep electing him, right? Mm -hmm. Because they still, they continue to want to give him a chance to say, okay, you didn't do your first term, your second term, your third term, or your fourth term. We know your fifth term, you're finally going to get around to helping us out. And it's just like, and that's what I'm used to, like black people, you know, sticking with each other. That's not true of Atlanta Hmm. at all. Um, And it's the most fascinating thing to me. It really is. Any understanding of what the the case may be? Because when I was there, I only spent a few days there years ago, though I I felt a a comfort between black and white in Atlanta that I most certainly have not felt here in Buffalo. That's exactly it. You really, truly can go anywhere to any upscale restaurant, any, you know, hole-in-the-wall restaurant, and there is there are black people, there are white people, there are Asian people, there are Indian people. It's, it's incredible, and I love it. And I think it's because there are enough. Um, I've never seen, I've truly, even living outside of Washington, D.C., I never saw a true black middle and upper class. That exists in Atlanta and that does not exist in other communities, and that's why you see what you see. In Buffalo, there's not a black middle class. There's not a black upper class. Most of the black community is, um, they're living like at or below the poverty line. So there's this sense of we all need to come up together, like we all need to help each other rise. And in Atlanta, enough people have risen above that line to where you can, you can, we can operate in society like anyone else. And I think that that's an incredible model. And if other communities could do that, could get people to um, rise above the poverty line, to be able to operate with everyone else, like, we can all coexist. It's, I, I wish other cities would just look at a city like this and, and copy the, the model. You may have already just uh, stolen my, uh, my question here, but one of the things we've been asking here on this program is really what, you know, what the title is, Buffalo, What's Next? What should be next for for the city. I mean, and that's a, a huge, huge question, and it's no, there's no simple answer. But if, is there something that flashes to your mind when it comes to it? Yeah, we could. This is something that could be done, and it could be done quickly. It could help in so many ways. That is a that's a big question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> what could be done? Um, I think the first thing that needs to be done. Let's start at the bottom. The first thing that needs to be done is to improve the health outcomes for people living east of Main Street in Buffalo. Um, having one grocery store, and I'm going to be honest because I don't live up there anymore, Tops is not the best grocery store, <laughs> okay? Um, <laughs> I can say that because there are no Tops here. There are no you know, advertisers. And that's why I had you on, Madison, because I wanted somebody <laughs> who could say something like I that. Can no offense that to Tops. <laughs> yeah, no offense to Tops. But it's, it's not the best grocery store. And people will say, like, I even went in and bought produce there compared to the Wegmans that was next to my place on the west side. Um, the apples, apples to apples are not the same. So I think the first thing that needs to be done is um, to have a new grocery store. And I see that they're remodeling and reopening right. um, the tops there. I live next to a grocery store here in Atlanta. This is a terrible name, and there's just no way around it. But they call it Murder Kroger. 
because mm-hmm. there used to be several homicides at this grocery store and nobody wanted to go. They tore the whole thing down and they rebuilt a beautiful store. And it completely changed. Like, people can go there now and they don't have that same association. They still call it that, but it's a different association. So I really would have loved to see them tear down that tops, but I just know it's not possible because there are no other grocery store options. So first step, improve health outcomes by creating not just one, but several places where people can go to get fresh food and produce. Um, put a gym somewhere. There's, I remember there's not a, a gym within 16 miles of the zip code 14215. Like, mm. There's not a major gym. I remember one of my reports, I did some research on that. So I think that is the very first thing that we need to do in order to help grow, because that improves life expectancy, that improves ability to work, to have employment. So start with health, and then we uh, have me back on the show, and we could talk about step two, three, and four. <laughs> you know, and Madison, I, I couldn't help but uh, notice as you, were, as you were giving that answer, though you were only here three years, you were using the word we. Uh, you have a, a strong mm. emo- emotional connection to the city. I do. I tell people, like, it's, it's home. Hmm. Madison Carter, I really appreciate your time, uh, continued success in Atlanta, and uh, hopefully the next time you come back to Buffalo, it'll be to stay here for a little while longer. We'll see. That was Jay Moran with Madison Carter from June 14th of last year. Next, we continue with Jay Moran as he speaks with Harper Bishop from June 16th of last year. And welcome back to Buffalo. What's next? I'm Jay Moran, and joining me, Harper Bishop a longtime advocate for housing justice here in the city of Buffalo. Harper, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jane. Uh, you had a chance actually to listen to uh, Mark Talley and uh, Tony Bruce there talk a little bit about this, uh, and you were responding throughout. What are your takeaways from the conversation we just heard? There's so many emotions, so many um, thoughts that were running through my head, um, but I think the takeaways for me um, are really... Uh, that these are the first steps that action needs to be taken. Um, and the talk and the conversations that we're having, what the show has allowed people, everyday people, to come on and say about their city is incredibly important. Uh, but without the action behind it, um, then where will we be, right? And, and what will happen after, um, as we know, the cameras have, have cleared and all those in our community who are looking to make progress and have for many years cited that policies have gotten to us to the place uh, that we are at today. What policies can we uh, look at and move forward uh, to create a more just, equitable uh, Buffalo? I want to get into those policies, obviously, and that's something you can really enlighten us on because we hear, you know, redlining that's Mm -hmm. tossed out, it's tossed out, it's tossed out, redlining had a lot to do with the way the city is right now. Before we get into that, though, mm-hmm. just a little bit, you're somebody I can only picture has spent time on almost every city street. There aren't a lot of people that we can say that about in the city of Buffalo. You know the strengths. You see these neighborhoods. How hopeful are you that there can be the type of improvement that I think we all want to see and that has been highlighted here by the conditions that we're seeing on Jefferson Avenue right now with was many people call it food apartheid. What do you see inside those neighborhoods that say, yeah, this is what we're, this is where we can be if we make some changes? So I feel today, at least, incredibly hopeful. 
if you talk to me on 514 or the immediate math thereafter, I would say that it was hard for me to find the hope. I felt the despair. I felt the grief. I felt the anger of so many in our community that were responding to those moments. Uh, today, we have folks like Mark Talley, who just spoke so powerfully about the actions that he and others are taking, whether it's here in Buffalo or traveling to Washington, D.C., to testify and to talk to our lawmakers, policymakers, decision makers at the highest level about what needs to change here. And people have been very pointed in what they're seeing. As you've mentioned, food apartheid, the reason that people use this phrase and don't say food desert is because food deserts are uh, you know, natural occurrences. Food, food apartheid really highlights that these are policy decisions that have been made. Um, I think that people are pointing out neoliberalism and the idea that the quote free market is not col is not colorblind. It actually takes into account, um, particularly black folks who have been left out of the economy have been left out. That's why we have one tops to service many people on on the east side uh, of of Buffalo. Uh, and so what people are talking about in their solutions are that we have people who are first responders. We've seen people lining Jefferson. We've seen uh, community uh, groups and organizations and community-based organizations that have been flourishing and functioning for decades now get the, the attention they rightfully deserve. Black-led organizations, and we can name many that Certainly. are right there on Jefferson, who have taken the lead, whereas food apartheid and that conversation were not taking place even a month and a half ago in a real way. It's been moved up the agenda so quickly. The African Heritage Food Co-op, the work that they're doing, the Fruit Belt commu community has said that they want that um, in their community for years. And now, and rightfully, our fundraising at the at the uh, scale that it always should have been able to uh, be fundraising at, and and be a place um, that people can come um, and have a, a self a self sufficient, self determined um, sort of community that like it was uh, decades ago. I was really interested in the way you described how capitalism, neoliberalism, neoliberalism. There we go. Mm -hmm. um, is not colorblind. We found that out, right? You are somebody who's spent over a decade now dealing with you know, housing justice issues here in the city of Buffalo. How stark, how over the top and obvious is are, are some of those situations? I mean, I mean mm -hmm. I, and, and, and if you can, offer examples of just how you have seen mm -hmm. racism make an impact on housing situations in the city of Buffalo. Sure, they're omnipresent. Uh, you can't talk about housing without talking about housing discrimination. Kianga Yamada Taylor, who uh, whose father is Dr. Henry Taylor, has written prolifically about uh, race for profit and what that means. When we talk to people, you've you've had Denise Barr, a community leader, on here already. She speaks very eloquently about. Redlining is not a thing of the past. People <laughs> try to say that that's a practice that is long gone. It's it's yesteryear. It is not yesteryear. Um, it is omnipresent in housing and uh, black folks, particularly being able to 
um, buy and build generational wealth. That was the impetus for and the idea of founding the Fruit Belt Community Land Trust so that folks would be able to determine what it is that they wanted to see in terms of housing and to have and to make decisions based on uh, and, and have affordable housing uh, in perpetuity. If Shirley Chisholm says, you know, if they don't give you a seat at the table, <laughs> bring your own chair. Right. Instead, the Fruit Belt Community Land Trust said, we're going to build our own table. <laughs> we right. can virtually, you know, build an insulated and insular, um, you know, community in which we have a community land trust in which we own both the land underneath and the housing above to re retain it uh, for generational wealth building. If you look on uh, the west side and what is happening, lead uh, in homes, is, and, and this is all over, but particularly right. the, where I've worked on the west side, um, astronomical. I had a former foster daughter whose lead um, you know, was was in a very unhealthy um, you know, sort. And she had impacts of lead poisoning? Yeah, well, she, had, she did. And um, if five or below is a safe zone, her numbers were over 20 when she came to us and has been dealing with that ever since. Um, Erie County does um, track people and they've been tracking individuals. Once you get into the system, they do a good job of tracking that. But it's ha that you have to be tested and all those things, and you have to have, you know, steady, um, you know, ability to be tested, and then you have to have landlords that are taking responsibility um, for, um, you know, cleaning up lead for um, the house, the housing stock as it is, um, and that oftentimes doesn't happen. We have a lot of absentee landlords. They do not live in Buffalo. They are not taking uh, responsibility for that. Uh, so when we talk about housing stock, when we talk about even ownership and who owns uh, housing, that is leaving out black, Latinx, other communities of color uh, to a great degree, to a great extent. And of course, we know the GI Bill, how it evolved and um, how white ownership was obviously um, able to assist white ownership uh, at a disproportionate amount. A lot of people then moved out to the suburbs. And of course, we have the urban core being left where people of color had to start with banks not giving them. Uh, Is that better now? Money. Is it better now, though, uh, with banks? Are banks better at that? Because redlining, and, and yep. I see you grit your teeth as you already <laughs> answered that. But, it, you know, because the redlining was really about banks and their lending practices. Yep. Is it better now? Are they doing enough? and what could be done, I guess, maybe to, to make more capital available in these neighborhoods? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's uh, banks of uh, Evans Bank just recently, in recent history, was tagged with um, being uh, a, a lender that was not giving to and, and providing mortgages to uh, community members um, in, in black and brown communities. So that's recent history. They were held accountable. They're doing better now, but because there was accountability. Right. I just uh, tuned into the Common Council hearing this past week, and uh, the talk was around around Chase putting uh, ATM right in front of the Meriwether Library, even though they had not made a commitment to African-American and black identifying people for many years, right? And there were people, as Council President Pridgen said, right down the road who have branches or have been in the community for a long time. So uh, what we see, unfortunately, in, in the uh, wake of this tragedy is you see, again, banks uh, and other lenders and people who were never invested in the black community and in black Buffalo and Jefferson in particularly now taking advantage of a moment uh, for profit. And that's what corporations do. And it leads back to my point right, around right. capitalism, neoliberalism, and how people will morph and change and 
uh, as Mark was talking about, the efficiency of white supremacy <laughs> is that you will continue. We have disaster capitalism. This is an example of that. Um, this is a terrorist uh, capitalist example of people taking advantage, corporations morphing to fit the moment, and that's unacceptable. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. How does music help and heal? Find out from our amazing guests on Mindful Music from Buffalo, Toronto Public Media. Join me, Carl Shallowhorn, Saturdays at 4 p.m. on WBFO, your NPR station. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with the Harper Bishop this morning on Buffalo What's Next. Uh, Harper, for a long time with a Push Buffalo, now uh, uh, segueing away from the, the organization at this time, but uh, still obviously very much uh, committed to uh, uh, housing justice here in the city of Buffalo. Uh, the, what is the capital availability? If you're uh, somebody who grows up on Jefferson or uh, off of Jefferson, perhaps in uh, you know, East Utica or wherever the case may be. Mm-hmm. What are the possibilities for somebody, compare their possibilities of getting capital to either buy a house or improve a home compared to somebody who lives in a white suburb? Yeah, well, we know that there, those um, chances and those differences are very stark, um, that there are numbers and um, I won't I won't quote them, but I think, you know, it's it's for the five times, you know, what a a white person will be able to um, access as compared to a, a black household. Um, and in uh, the suburbs, I mean, I, I always tell people if they want to see a, an example of leakage, uh, all they have to do at 5 p.m. is go to the 33 and they will watch. You know, they will watch car after car exit the city of Buffalo and retreat back to white suburbs uh, or predominantly white suburbs. And so all of those jobs that otherwise could be held by city residents and primarily, as we know, uh, Buffalo has been a predominantly uh, uh, black uh, you know, POC-led organiz- or led uh, city, right. and and uh, um, those those statistics are there uh, since early 2000s, and so all the jobs that would be you know given to um, folks of color are not being given to folks of color. They're actually highly educated people who are coming into, and it's been made um, very clear. Um, the Kensington Expressway. I mean, I think I heard it called recently uh, the biggest homage to white supremacy in the city of Buffalo uh, because it cuts through the black neighborhood on purpose, intentionally taking power from them and, um, you know, driving that through as a way for people from the suburbs to get in for jobs and job creation. So I think that people feel 
that there are not opportunities, there are not living wage jobs, there are not uh, the things that need to be put in place. Of course, we have the Northland Workforce Center. I know, you know, PUSH obviously is working on a sustainable, uh, a sustainable uh, workforce uh, development center on the west side as well, but those need to be more prolific. There need to be more jobs available. They need to be good family sustaining wages. Um, and we can't continue to give our public dollars to projects like Tesla that promise hundreds and thousands of jobs don't deliver, and then there's no clawbacks to get our public dollars back. And so people have been complaining about this for a very long time, but that's a right complaint. It's, a, it's, it's actually a systemic issue that needs to be addressed and who is getting those jobs, where are they being placed, uh, et cetera. And we know that the architecture of the city has been to really allow and prioritize um, white folks that are highly educated um, to first and foremost uh, get those jobs. When I used to work in the Fruit Belt, uh, I would canvas regularly all of those streets. And of course, that's just a few blocks away from the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus. And I never met one person who said they had a job on the medical campus. Uh, Even we, though you're within easy walking distance. Of oh, campus. yeah. Right. Easy. Yeah. And so the e- economic development and just the idea of who gets the jobs, who pri- who is prioritized. Um, never one person said to me, I'm even, you know, I'm working as a nurse there or um, and again, that could be that I miss some people and they're, you know, right. I didn't I didn't talk to every single person. But if you think generally canvassing a neighborhood over and over, I would come about um, speaking to someone who had some position on the medical corridor. I, I had a chance uh, to meet you uh, at the press event a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. over on uh, Carlton Street uh, where Alex Wright was there uh, talking about the African Heritage Food Co-op. Can you picture that neighborhood with that co-op functioning at the level that, that um, Alex is talking about and what that mm-hmm. would mean for that, for that neighborhood and how it might be a model for other neighborhoods in the city? So that is exactly how we envisioned it when we were creating the Community Land Trust was to think that uh, what we call it is a local living economy. And so what has happened at a meta level is that there's been extraction of resources, natural resources, and exploitation of workers. And the idea is to create a regenerative economy in which you have well-being and people and functionality really being centered. In this instance, the idea was to own the land and to petition the city that there's 200 lots in that uh, particular neighborhood alone. That means that uh, we won 50 of them, so a quarter of the lots. The idea was to use the land as a building block to then create the community that previously existed. People talk all the time about the fruit trees and the grocery stores and that it was a self-contained neighborhood, just like the one I grew up in East Aurora, that I could walk to anything that I needed and have what I needed right there. The Fruit Belt, there's no reason why that cannot happen. There's uh, social life happening, there's churches, there's community centers, the Moot Center uh, hosts senior activities. And then the idea is that you would build you know, gardens that could be self-sufficient during COVID-19. We saw how the supply chain breakdown really was difficult and uh, you know how, why we need uh, resiliency in our food systems. And then a grocery store, which would provide for the neighborhood, the food, uh, right, that it needs right there, black ownership, cooperative ownership, and then paying living wage jobs to people in the neighborhood so that they are employed. As you talked about, we haven't had 
add jobs for people in the community. And this is also a job generator, uh, right? And so it's the best and and version of what the Fruit Belt hopes you know would be. And for us, as you've said, much like we don't think that the green development zone uh, on the west side is is like you know decision making for everybody. It's one example of what can be modeled, and that's kind of the old growth. And the Fruit Belt is a new growth of showing an example of a East Buffalo community that can do exactly the same thing. So the grocery store is not made to feed all of East Buffalo. It's right. to say, you know, Fruit Belt and Cold Spring and Hamlin Park. Ev- every neighborhood should have this. So should you know, disgustingly, a terrorist attack happened, there are still grocers online where people can go and walk to and be in community. Uh, Harper, we heard uh, Mark tell you and I were sitting here in this studio listening to Mark and uh, Tony Bruce and Dave Debo talk in the other studio. And this is our, we're down to about two minutes here. So uh, I thought about this. You heard Mark talk, I thought with uh, a, a, a remarkable amount of optimism. Mm-hmm. This is what I got from him. This is a, a man who just lost his mother in uh, this this May 14th shooting. Mm-hmm. Talking about the community groups he's seeing on Jefferson Avenue. You've been in this now for over a decade mm-hmm. when it comes to housing justice. And you've seen a few political ebbs and flows. You know, the election's here. Things get highlighted. Mm-hmm. Things go to the wayside. Any different sense of hope, of optimism for you, knowing the, the problems that, that still exist? Yeah, you know, I, w- I was incredibly impressed by Mark and the fortitude and uh, just determination and the power of hope that he brought uh, really heartened me. Um, and as you've said, if he, he can do that in the face of all of this and losing his mother, um, it, it absolutely today <laughs> gave me uh, a different perspective and a, a, a more hopeful one. Um, I am heartened and hopeful because I see on a daily basis I get to work with the doers in our city, the people who are committed to when things, times get tough to uh, really uh, hunkering down and doing the good work and saying that we need more of it. We need more people. And I think there's more people that are coming into the movement because of this moment. And we welcome all of them with open arms. Uh, And so what I do see is I see a strategy, a political strategy developing of individuals who want to run for office. They're saying that the status quo is no longer okay. If our elected officials can't get it done now, they're never going to get it done and there needs to be a new political era is what I'm hearing in neighborhoods. I'm also seeing people power that people are being relentless and going to their elected officials and making them understand that you serve us, not vice versa. Uh, And I see people responding both short term and long term. And that long term strategy is going to see our city through. That was Jay Moran with Harper Bishop from June 16th of last year. And we end the show with excerpts from Making Spaces panel discussion at Buffalo Art Studio from December 15th of last year. We start with architectural designer Justina Jama. Her unique project at Buffalo Art Studio made castings of many of the historic and, in many cases, crumbling structures of Buffalo's east side. That work also provided insight into the real living conditions of some of the city's poorest neighborhoods. I was here in the 2021 cycle for the activism in the arts um, program um, that fall. And um, the work I did was 
um, about exploring uh, the post-industrial landscape of Buffalo, specifically for this past exhibit, the East Side Community, and uh, a big part of the project was um, about engagement um, with the community. So um, I went through legal channels to kind of uh, cast these um, misused or otherwise uh, um, seemingly abandoned buildings and met a lot of um, neat people along the way who kind of have uh, similar outlooks on what they want to see in the future um, on the Buffalo's east side um, and uh, you know starting some interesting conversations on um, what we can do in that community. Architectural designer Justina Jama. For these panel discussions, Buffalo Art Studio looks to bring together a wide array of perspectives. Certainly the arts are represented, and so is scholarship. And for that aspect, they welcomed Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor, Jr. I'm both a historian and an urban planner, so in many respects I, I think of myself as a time traveler. I'm as comfortable in 1820 as I am in 5050, and we haven't even gotten there yet. I say 50-50 because planning is, is always uh, about the future. And my work itself centers around the processes of change over time, uh, with a particular emphasis on how we build cities. And my working ongoing hypothesis is that in the United States, uh, the way we build cities is racist and uh, is based on class exclusion and the dehumanization of people. Uh, we have no respect for human dignity in this country and that's reflected in the way in which we build cities. And I say we have no respect for human life or dignity because if we did, the only way we would be able to see the conditions on the east side is to go to some kind of history museum where they would be, those kinds of historical artifacts would be located. The, the past year in, uh, in, on, on Buffalo's East Side, I think has been characterized by three kinds of trends. Uh, on the le one level, I, I've seen a continuing awakening of the residents in those communities. Um, uh, and people have started grassroots movements to rebuild and transform their, their communities and their neighborhoods. And there's been a, a higher level of organization down on the ground and inside of the neighborhoods and the communities that, that's there. Uh, and we see it at all locations and, and all places. I'm also the chairman of the board of the King Urban Life Center, which is located on uh, Genesee Street in the Broadway Fillmore area. And even in that place, which has really been devastated by Buffalo City building process, we see that. Started working with groups in, in a number of different locations and places. And I'm sure Denise will talk about the things that are going on in the Fruit Belt. That's at one level. At another level, we have seen a growing interest in people wanting to invest on the east side. And uh, right now, based on our count, over $2 billion 
are either being planned and implemented uh, in projects that are being developed. Uh, and that doesn't even include uh, the governor's billion dollars for the coverage of a certain part uh, of the east side. So we see dollars flowing in, into the east side. Then we see some really bad things, mostly coming from City Hall, mostly coming from greedy entrepreneurs. And, and these things are, are taking two forms. One is the emergence of all these symbolic projects. And I say a project is, is symbolic because it's designed to create hope and possibility in a moment when they know nothing is going to happen. It's a game. And so we say these symbolic projects because they will never lead to the structural transformation of these communities. They're full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The other dimension is that white folks in their ingenuity have found a way to turn the east side into a big jobs program for white folks. Understand it. When we talk about two, maybe three billion dollars being invested on the east side, we must ask the question, who gets the contracts? Who gets the jobs? And they will mostly be white folks. And those dollars will flow through the black community like water through a sieve en route to the suburban communities where they will, in fact, multiply and produce greater jobs and greater opportunities. So with all of this money coming in, we see folks out in the suburbs popping champagne corks and lighting cigars because this is the beginning of a good time for them and City Hall is the architect of all of that. I better stop now. <laughs> Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr. Now, one of the city's grassroots activists, Denise Barr. Interesting conversation. I was talking with a young woman today who I like a lot. And she was talking about a project that they're looking to do, you know, in the neighborhood. And she was very excited. And it's, I, I tried to relate to her the fact that my neighborhood has had so many broken promises and broken dreams. You know, it feels a lot like when I come out of my house or your, when you come out of your house and you see how the leaves have fallen and they're just scattered all over the place. And they're really pretty, right? But they don't really serve any purpose once they fall off the tree. And they just move and they scatter as they want to. And you can't really do anything with them and pick them up and put them to another location where they blow around somewhere else. That's what it feels like a lot for us. There's all of these things that have been promised, all of these dreams and hopes over generations that have just fallen down onto the ground and scattered around our feet. 
and we have to just try to shuffle them around and move around them and keep on going. I always say to people, you know, I know for people that don't live in black communities, they see things in the news about crime. The reality of the situation is that we are always being used for someone's figment of imagination to create a situation where they benefit off of us. It's generational, it's not new, but it still is painful. UB professor Matt Kenyon. And I'm in my fifth year in Buffalo. I moved here uh, with my wife, Laura Maris, uh, about five years ago. I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the central sculpture in the exhibition that I put together with uh, Jason Ferguson, one of my colleagues from Eastern Michigan. The central sculpture is called Kicking the Ladder, and it's a brand new piece that um, is a variation on a project called Tide. Um, and so inside the Champagne Tower uh, are tiny little sculptures of um, modeled after actual houses um, from the west side of Buffalo where I live and also in um, Baton Rouge, Louisiana where my family lives. And in 2016, my family uh, and a large part of the Baton Rouge community were flooded um, by a storm. Uh, it wasn't a hurricane, it was one of these new types of storms that just sort of parks itself over uh, a, a part of the city that uh, previously hadn't really flooded and uh, proceeded to flood the uh, hundreds, uh, thousands of homes. The negative impacts of that um, continue to this day. And so uh, in response to that event, uh, in thinking about the um, impending housing crisis uh, that is really intersectional with the climate crisis uh, that we're all uh, experiencing, wanted to create a sculpture that talked about uh, the sort of mythologies about trickle-down economics, right? This idea, this false idea that, um, you know, if you give the wealthy enough money that some of it will trickle down. And uh, I prefer, there's another story to it, uh, another metaphor, uh, it's the story of the horse and the sparrow. Uh, and that is, if you feed a horse enough oats, some of it will pass down to the sparrows on the street. And I think, you know, that's a little more, more accurate uh, story uh, of our economic situation. Uh, but anyway, so the houses are cast out of a material that has the same refractive index as water, and uh, so they effectively disappear. Um, and uh, what I think, you know, I've seen and we continue to see is that after uh, these um, climate events that the media moves on to the next tragedy and, um, and the people who have been negatively impacted are left uh, you know, the real trickle down is the negative externalities of these, um, the housing crisis and the climate crisis. We have to liberate our minds and rethink how we build cities in order to deal with the kinds of issues that we're, we're talking about of abandonment, of the way in which they build cities. I mean, like right now, with the billions of dollars that I'm talking, was talking about earlier that are being invested on the east side, those projects are meaningless because none of them are connected to neighborhoods and communities. They're just site-based projects uh, with limited visions. The way you're supposed to do that kind of work is you have a neighborhood 
And then on the basis of, of, of that neighborhood and deep interactions with all of the people who live in the neighborhood, you generate an idea of the place you want to create. And when you go about planning and development in that way, and then if you anchor it around a notion of common resources, we call it the commons, people need to gain control over those resources. The hard reality is that on Buffalo's east side, black people and others that live there, we don't own and control the land on which neighborhoods and communities are being built. Somebody else owns and controls that land. The other fact is that the community is the site of intense predatory investments. It's a lie that the east side is a site of disinvestment. That's just a lie. I'll give you two concrete examples. The state, in scattering all of its lottery machinery around, sucks some $32 million a year out of East Side. Now, folks will say, well, why are the people paying the lottery in the first place? If you ask somebody on the East Side, that, they'll smile and laugh. And you say, you only got a one in a million chance of winning. And they'll say, and if I don't play, I got no chance to get the resources to make my life better. So one in a million is better than none. So the, the, the point that I'm making is we can't do these things the way we are currently building cities. Uh, right now, all over the east side, including the fruit belt, the mayor has turned vacant land into a commodity. In the fruit belt, Reverend Chapman bought three lots for a project he was going to develop. I'll let Denise evaluate the project. <laughs> but the city charged him $90,000 for three unkept vacant lots that are appraised at only about $16,000, and that's an inflated price. Then all over the city, so what I'm saying is th those are common goods, resources. The Fruit Belt ought to own and control them. And this way we get the resources that we would need to develop the community in a, in a, in a just way. All I know is that we have to try to preserve what we have, what we can hang on to. We have to fight together. When I say we, I'm talking about the alliances that I work with. I'm talking about the people that really strive together to bring a conversation that says there's been enough damage done, even to the point of talking about the expressway. You know, it took me a long time to understand that this was something that happened across the nation. This wasn't just something that happened to my community. It felt personal because it happened to us. But this happened to communities of color all across the nation, that communities were divided for white flight. At some point, you know what? I keep telling people, they're coming for us. At some point, they're coming for you too.
Don't be comfortable because wherever you live, if they haven't looked at it yet and seen how they can make a profit of it, they're coming. They're going to find a way to get to you just like they got to where we are. So, you know, I, I, I'm about trying to build relationships and let people know, you know, we have to be able to protect what we have left. And that will do it for today's Summertime Producer Pick episode. We would like to thank our guest, Madison Carter, Harper Bishop, and a panel at Buffalo Arts Studio. If you missed this and you'd like to hear it again, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcast or the new Amplified BTPM app. And each episode is available online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening. Thank you.